Today we're here with Benon Sevan, former Under Secretary General of the United Nations. Benon, how are you doing? I'm okay, yeah. fine. Surviving the, that's the name of the game these days with all the COVID, everything going on. Yeah. Well, thanks for joining us. Uh, we're usually, as our listeners know, more of an environment podcast, but today this is going to be much more of a political episode as uh, we're really honored to have been on here. He has a lot of experience in the United Nations um, as you made it your career for decades. Now, can you tell us a little bit about when you started working at the UN and well, how you I came? I started, uh, in fact, before I finished graduate school, my last semester was 1965 February. Mm -hmm. And then after four years plus, I left, I came back to Cyprus where I'm now 15 years already. But I served both at headquarters and in the field. I think, I'm proud to say, I served in every sector of the United Nations, whether it's peacekeeping, mm-hmm. peacemaking, especially representative secretary general of Afghanistan, Pakistan, special missions, served also as Middle East uh, envoy for the secretary general for missing persons. Had a lot of dealings with Middle East people. Sometimes I felt like an undertaker negotiating body parts. And uh, I've seen so much, I witnessed so much suffering in the world. Mm-hmm. So much misery. Yeah. That when people complain, sometimes I say, stop complaining. You don't know what misery is. Like in Afghanistan, all these children with no arms, no legs. It was it's horrible. Yeah, but before Afghanistan, before- But there is one thing, you know, I like to say from the start, yeah. beginning. There is something which I've always regret. When people talk about United Nations, they fail to make a distinction between member states and the secretariat, the secretary general. Whenever they say United Nations has failed, they don't make a distinction. They're clarifying as to who is the one who failed. And the blame always goes to the secretary general. I've always prided myself at the UN to be politically most incorrect secretary official. Because I will sp- speak on my mind, I will tell delegations, I'm sorry, you are responsible for this. We are responsible for this. It is you who establishes the mandates and we implement it. If you have problem the way we implementing your mandate, I'm prepared to respond to you and explain to you what we are doing. But in terms of why this mandate, you ask yourselves. This was a question I remember. I used to go meet with the second Security Council once a week to brief them on Iraq, on the oil for food program, for example. And I remember one day one ambassador blasting like hell for half an hour. I will not give the name. How sanctions are killing innocent people, children, etc. And on and on and on. And then I asked for the floor. I said, Mr. President, I said, uh, I'm afraid some of you are overestimating my stupidity. I failed to understand why I said ambassador, distinguished ambassador of such and such country, made the statement looking at me. This room, I said, was designed small in order for you to look straight to the eyes of those you are addressing to. Therefore, I said, Mr. President, I will ask the ambassador to stop this ricochet-style diplomatic talk, looking at me and making this speech while in fact he's addressing people sitting across from him. And sitting across from him were two other delegations. I said, it's not Mr. Sevan who imposed sanctions on Iraq or my staff, not even the Secretary General, it is you. You imposed it. So you have questions, you ask yourselves. Some of you have asked second thoughts. You want to soften the sanctions or you want to lift it up, but you don't have the votes. So what do you do? You take your Frustration out on the Secretariat. I said, Mr. President, I've always accepted that part of my salary, maybe up to 30%, is given to me to become a scapegoat. If it serves a purpose, I'm prepared to serve. But I said, Mr. President, as you well know, goats, as cute as they are, they are sometimes ready to kick back. So this old goat sitting next to you, I said, is ready to kick back. It is you who impose sanctions. And the only innocent, I said, is the child born this morning in Iraq. Thank you, Mr. President. So the President of the Security Council, I was sitting next to him, he put his arm around me. He said, my brother, friend, Benon, 
You're acting like judge and jury. They all said yes. I said, Mr. President, I said, may I say one more thing? He said, yes. Since you call me judge and jury, I said, I pray to God to become the executioner also. Because one has to make a distinction who is the one who's making decisions. And not to confuse every time people talk about United Nations, the Secretary General and his stuff. I'm sorry to say. There are a lot of mistakes I made by the Secretary General and the staff, but we should make a distinction where and when and what. This is important. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, just want to go back to maybe some of the first steps that you took within the UN before becoming a scapegoat or someone at those No, no, I'm talking about tables. in general, not just me. I, I know, but I, I want to come back to just very quickly how you started in the UN. Uh, I know you started as a caption writer and you uh, went to Papua New Guinea as well. Uh, I was just wondering if you could tell us maybe a little bit about that, when it was as well, if you can contextualize well, it. No, I had no intention to work in the United Nations. Mm -hmm. I did philosophy in college and graduate school, School of International and Public Affairs at Columbia University. And in fact, I like to write and photography. I was planning to go into photography, photojournalist. I was working as a photojournalist while I was at school. And I came to service during the fighting. I left the school for two weeks, was in ditches, took photographs. And uh, I was back in time, mid-March, and take to, took the first photograph. I mean, I took the photograph of the first resolution adopted by Security Council establishing the peacekeeping in Cyprus. Mm -hmm. Then, you know, here they were trying to push me to come to work in Cyprus. The foreign minister said, no, no. And they pushed me, so I joined the UN. I was a young kid those days, so there was one post that since they had seen I put photography as my uh, hobby. Mm -hmm. They said they'll put me in the radiovisual division at the UN for four months and they'll move me to the political press afterwards. It was the best start for me. I was a young kid and uh, writing the photo captions, I had to follow the meetings in different intergovernmental bodies at the UN, reading the, what they call the press releases. So therefore, it was a fantastic introduction for me to see what's going on daily at the UN. And also seeing the photographs, I came to identify the people also to write the captions. It opened me a lot of doors. You know how it is. If you have a camera <laughs> and you have the photographs, everyone wants to have their photographs. Yeah. So I'll have ambassadors, others calling. There's a young kid. Benon, can you give us this photograph? So I got stuck there for 16 months because they told me, oh, we are, you, are, you are our best Caption writer. I said, listen, I didn't study for seven years. So anyway, afterwards I moved to the Committee of Decolonization or Committee of 24. Oh, right, okay. And in the 60s, it was a big, uh, important role. Of the yeah, year. there were still a lot of colonies. And so it was a good start. And then I went to uh, different missions. My first overseas mission was uh, to go as a member of the team of the representatives Representative Secretary General at the time was called Irian Jaya when they organized, Indonesians organized with the assistance of the Secretary General an act of free choice for the local Papuans to decide whether they want to be part of Indonesia or not. Mm -hmm. After nine months, I went back to New York and I, I liked the place very much. People that thought I was crazy, I said no. I volunteered, I went back with UN Development Program, I became the assistant. Uh, President representative of UNDP in Papua New Guinea. It was a fantastic experience. I stayed three more years. So, I mean, I didn't want to get stuck with any particular job. I, I went different parts, and then I was in charge of Security Council, General Assembly Affairs, Secretariat. Therefore, I did everything at the UN except working in atomic energy. So, I was exposed to daily negotiations at the highest levels and the lowest levels, formal meetings informal meetings or informal informal meetings. Yeah. So therefore, you know, it was a fantastic experience, 40 years plus. I have no regret. And uh, if I help to save the life of one person, I thank God for that privilege. Apart from just making distinctions, unfortunately, most people, they relate to the UN or they identify UN, what the Security Council does or not. Mm -hmm. We have thousands and thousands of 
young men and women and older people who work in the field, they are prepared to sacrifice their lives. They help the people to make the difference day-to-day -day lives of people. Some of them, increasingly more and more, they are killed in the, in the line of duty. For me, I survived three times. The last time was in, in Iraq, when they put the bomb under our, next to our office, where we lost 22 people. I was survived by one minute, because I changed the venue of my meeting next to my deputy's room, because I was dying for an espresso. So I took the three people with me to go to his office, because it was later. Just as we reached his office, 30 feet away, on the same corridor, the bomb went off, 22 people got killed, 165 people injured. I felt guilty for surviving when I saw all my colleagues on the floor killed. So people are sacrificing their lives to help people. Yesterday I was watching on BBC, there's a program mm -hmm. where this uh, tough guy, he, he does uh, interviews. Mm. Anyway, he was interviewing the World Food Program executive director, which the World Food Program got the Nobel Peace Prize this year, which they deserve very well. He was explaining very well. Thousands of people are working to help people day to day in places where you haven't even heard of it, you know. These are the people who have to be recognized. UN is not just ambassadors yeah. and uh, talks in the General Assembly, etc. On the ground level, this is where the UN work is and this is where it should be counted to be evaluated. That's how I feel, because I've been in the field, I know. Do you feel that with all the contact you've had with um, various politicians and high-ranking high international and national leaders, do you think, because I, because I feel given the responsibilities, powers and privileges uh, that those people have, I feel that um, ordinary citizens may feel quite distanced from those people. Um, from your experience, would you would you see this as being true? Uh, that kind of distance in understanding um, ordinary people's needs, well, perhaps struggles as well. You find that in all sectors of society, you know, depends also on the number of people at the highest levels, how they are connecting with the people. If they are disconnected with the people, they cannot be as effective as they should be. And the things that I always tell people in my life, in my work, I met the best and the worst people in the world. Some are the most admirable, some of them are the most despicable people, you know. But you have to work with them. But at the same time, uh, in order to be effective, you have to be with the people you're working with. This I was telling you a while ago, like uh, when I was in Afghanistan and Pakistan, I had a choice later on to work from Geneva in charge of Afghanistan and Pakistan, which was a more comfortable job, place, higher rate of salary. I told Sergei, no, I'm prepared to do this job, additional job, which he was giving to me, to be humanitarian coordinator also, on condition that I work inside Afghanistan and Pakistan. Because unless I am with the people, I feel the people, I feel their feelings, I watch the suffering. I cannot be as effective as I want to be because I cannot run this program by binoculars in Geneva. Yeah. And how, how, did, you, how did you see yourself? Uh, in what way would you be able to connect with the people? Would you go out and meet um, people on the street? All the time. Yeah. Because unless you do so, unless you smell them, literally, they're sweat you cannot you cannot you cannot just sit down with leaders and talk blah 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 you have to understand the feelings of the people and that's what's for me on every mission i was i associate with the people the regular people the drivers etc i sit with them i stick with them i want to know the real feelings of the people if i wanted to be comfortable it was very easy I survived four times, three times in Afghanistan, and the last time was in Iraq. I was so close to death, but I was always with the people, and they respect you for, because then they can identify themselves with someone who feels their feelings, who feels their suffering, 
who witnesses their suffering. I could talk with them one-to-one. -one. They felt comfortable. I didn't want to be untouchable. Do you think the UN has this this culture of being, of feeling like untouchable? Well, Do you we think have, that culture has changed maybe as well? Well, I mean, depends on individuals, you know. There are some individuals, you know, I never forget, for example, when I joined the UN mm -hmm. at the lowest level, P1, step one. Yeah, that's what I'm applying for these days. Somebody was sitting with me, who was another caption writer, it was one grade above me, he was much older than me. He gave me advice, I couldn't believe it, that I should not associate with people who are below my level. No, below my level was, we have at the UN two categories, professional and general service. Right. I said, why? Yeah, but he says, you know, it gives the wrong impression. You should associate all of it with people at your level. I said, listen, do whatever you want to do it. Me, I want to be Benon Savan. I want to act the way I am. Okay? Mm -hmm. You don't like it? We can transfer. But it depends on the individual. So you have good people, yeah. bad people at the UN. So, you know, just it's difficult to generate thousands of people yeah, yeah, of course. working at the UN with hundreds of different nationalities and uh, backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds, racial backgrounds, religious backgrounds. So it's very difficult. Yeah. But, but there's still an overarching culture of the UN. I think last, still, last but, year know, when we had dinner, you told me, I remember this very clearly, you, you even told me not to join the UN because you said that yeah, because, it has changed so much. No, no, it has changed so much. Now. Unfortunately, it's become a lot bureaucratic at the at headquarters level. And unfortunately, also, a lot of governments, member states, they are sidelining the United Nations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This past four years, for example, American administration, I'm sorry to say, you know, sideline not only the United Nations. They've been defunding. Defunding, well. they, yeah. they got out of uh, WHO. And, uh, yeah. So hopefully they will rejoin again as stated by President-elect Biden. But uh, the thing is also, the sad part is the hypocrisy also of government sometimes. They consider themselves to be the exceptional ones. They can never do anything mistake. When they bomb and they kill civilians, they consider that to be what they call the... Oh, I yeah, I, I know what you mean. Uh, the title of uh, Edward Snowden's you know, just thing, to, what was it called? To be a, you know, like, like a side effect almost. Yes. Like, you know? What is it called again, Jamie? Collateral. Yeah. Collateral damage. Collateral damage. But if somebody else does it, the same thing, it's called war crime. Mm. Okay, they want to bring other people to, to war crime, you know, intellectual court, but they don't allow the, that court to deal with their own soldiers. They're different. Or if there was a prosecutor who wanted to come, they cancel their visa, visa and they even put them under sanctions. So there are double, triple, quadruple standards, you know. Mm -hmm. So therefore one has to make a distinction about these things. In politics. Do you think that the the that culture of the UN, not just bureaucracy, but uh, how it has acted, has been because of high leaderships? So I'm I'm wondering, basically, what you think the effect of the high leadership of the Secretary General, like I know you were quite good friends with Kofi Annan, but also maybe uh, Boutros Ghali or, or Ban Ki Moon Guterres. I, I wonder how their leadership has an effect on the well, UN. I know it can affect the stuff more than governments. Mm -hmm. When I joined, it was Utant, then it was Voltaire, then it was President Cuellar, then it was Boudros Ghali, yeah. then it was Kofi Annan. They all had different places and analysis, you know. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, basically it's the member states, how much they will allow the Secretary General the leeway or not, yeah. and how much the Secretary General is prepared to stand and stand. Therefore, Let's be frank about it, unless you have the support of governments, it becomes very difficult. They can undermine you. So it's a very difficult balancing act. And uh, for me, I look at the UN like a mechanism. It has its own rules, regulations, but if you know how to utilize those instruments you have, you can make fantastic dishes. Mm -hmm. If you make cuisinar, for example. <laughs> but if you don't know how to use the cuisinar, you can chop your fingers off. Yeah. So therefore, don't blame the organization for your own failures. You know, 
Therefore, one has to know how it works, its limitations, and its maximum benefits you can get. It's like politics. I say the same thing in Cyprus. In politics, my friend, there is no friendship. There are common interests, and they change like fashion. Therefore, the fact that you believe that your cause is just, justice is not going to come just because it's just, because you believe in just. I look at Cyprus, what's happening, you know, okay? I give you an example. A few months ago, there were elections in Belarusia. Mm-hmm. In less than three months, European Union pushed to impose sanctions on Belarusia. Yeah, because the, the, the elections were heavily yeah. contested. Yeah. And, yeah. Here is, I'm giving an Here is Cyprus and Greece complaining about Turkey for so many years now. Or the Eastern Mediterranean, etc., etc., and literally begging the European Union to take sanctions against Turkey. Mm-hmm. Keep postponing, 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 yeah. postponing. Even now, the latest one yesterday, again, because nothing. Belarus uh, has almost nothing it can offer. So, Europe, but the has. question is these are facts, maybe regrettable, right? Depends on which side it is. But these are facts one has to bear in mind when you look at these things. Mm-hmm. So, therefore, don't blame the mechanism. For your own failures, for it's like a car. Mm-hmm. You can crash a car, but don't blame the car. Yeah. <laughs> if you don't know how to drive it. That's what it is. That's why I look at it. I, I wonder, because earlier we were talking about the importance of actually understanding the needs and struggles of the people connecting with them. I wonder with the people you've encountered, um, do you do you get the sense that it's sort of just reliant on the goodwill? Or, or the inclinations of the particular politician, or if you come across politicians coming from a place that seems to almost institute this sort of connection between them and the people, or perhaps have a kind of entrenched culture that ensures that, or is it just sort of reliant on the person, what, what the person themselves is? You cannot generalize, you know, there are individuals, cases, case by case basis, because, you know, there may be a government, with an excellent minister, there's a minister who's completely different, personality, you know. Mm. So therefore, it depends on the person. You know, the, the personality, I should say. But at the same time, I tell people that don't confuse the person or the personality of the individual with the policies of the government he represents. i give you an example. I'm of Armenian origin. Samantha Power had written a book on that means genocide, etc., etc. Mm. Then she became ambassador of the United States to the United Nations. Yeah. Some Armenians, they were criticizing her. Why is she looking on? She's not talking about genocide. I still listen. The lady now is no longer Samantha Power when she speaks. She's the ambassador of the United States to the United Nations. She has to reflect the views and policies of her government. Period. These are things which one should bear in mind. Unfortunately, the average person doesn't do it. They jump conclusions, you know. So therefore, the fact that this lady was not speaking doesn't mean that she has come to refute what her, she really believed. No, but she's there as ambassador. These are things also, you know, I'm sorry, having been involved too closely on these things, I feel more, what you call, uh, sensitive about these issues to make the distinction. Like me, for example, I don't look at someone in terms of nationality. I look at someone as an individual with his or her character. There are good people in every country, every nation, every ethnic group, every group of color, ethnic, whatever it is, and bad ones in everyone also. So therefore I look at the individual. So this is important, but then it takes a long time to develop this thing, you know, Do because you think- I it's very easy to blank, with the blanket paint, you paint everybody. Yeah. If they are this ethnic group, they're lousy. No, I'm sorry. Like some people in the States, for example, well, migrants are not good. I'm sorry. Some of the migrants have been the big, biggest gen- generous contributors to United States development, you know. But to say all migrants are bad, I'm sorry. Yeah. I cannot accept that. I wonder what you think of the role of UN peacekeeping troops, because this is something that's really talked about in a lot of different contexts. I know the university, for example, Whenever we touched upon the United Nations questions, it was 90% of the time, I'd say, it was about peacekeeping and the role of the UN in peacekeeping. 
and more often than not in academic context framed as a negative so i was wondering what your experience was of peacekeepers well i mean look i mean we're, we're in the peacekeeper house right now <laughs> so i'm being a myself i told you in 65 in 64 march i was there i took the photograph when they were voting for the first resolution establishing peacekeeping in cyprus 64 march 20 or 23. I joined the UN 65 February. Still going on. Mm -hmm. I came back here after 40 years plus, 2005, end of May. We're 2000 now. Still going on. It is, I think, the third longest mission. Because there's one on UNSO, the Middle East. Mm -hmm. And then there's one between India and Pakistan. The question is, you cannot make peace unless there are people who are prepared to make peace with each other. Sometimes I feel by putting a peacekeeping operation, you're postponing maybe bringing final peace if you can. Hmm. At the same time, like it has happened in Cyprus now, people have come to consider part of their lives to have this peacekeeping operation. They feel comfortable. And I tell them, hey, you don't know how long it's going to last this thing. You cannot go on. So therefore, sometimes people find convenient to have a peacekeeping operation because it prevents, in their own mind, any start of fighting or resumption of fighting. This is what has happened in Cyprus now, unfortunately. Yeah. It has become part of daily life in Cyprus. Mm. I mean, for the thing from 64 till 2020 is still going on. Although the numbers of peacekeepers have been reduced, but still going on. Yeah. And I remember a few years ago, I was still in New York, UN, they tried to cut down and Cyprus and Greece jumped into it and they agreed to provide part of the funding themselves, which I think 30% they funded really? every year. Because they were too scared to have to face that reality. Well, it is, yeah, but at the same time, you know, it has become too much of an excuse yeah. not to worry about trying to rush for a peacekeeping, to bring peace mm -hmm. on both sides. Yeah. Yeah, I see how that could be counterintuitive. But then if I say these things sometimes to my compatriots, yeah, they get annoyed with me. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I've, I've heard from many people, including Nadia, that um, Cyprus conflict is... <laughs> One of, one of, if not the most complex conflict in the world to, to resolve. I mean, as I always say, you know, they call it as frozen disputes. Mm -hmm. Even when today with the environment change, habitat change, glaciers are melting down, some of the frozen conflicts are getting more frozen <laughs> and still being melting yeah. down. I mean, to put it that way. Yeah. To picture actually for you. <laughs> so reverse climate you know, change for complex. I was telling you before, I said, I'm coming, come to your own judgment. I don't know, I don't know how many New York years I will live. And probably peacekeeping operations service will outlive me. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's sad, but it's true. Because the sad thing is, you know, in Cyprus, for example, my generation, we knew each other. The tragedy is now we have two generations, they don't know each other. Yeah. You can be a Turkish Cypriot and a Greek Cypriot, 40 years old, without ever meeting each other, ever. Mm -hmm. And I guess we grew up together. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's quite sad, yeah. It's sad part, you know, because it becomes frozen in attitudes, everything. It's part of the education, part of the religion, mm -hmm. and people, fanatics, they exploit it. I mean, how, how would you think that a problem like that could be solved you know we like there's there's the thing like the solidarity core and the erasmus plus in the european union do you think those things would be sufficient to sort of bring people to get together again to kind of make people or, or rather help people interact with each other from different cultures yeah so how we could help people interact like, like well, i don't know if you heard it properly but it was not clear, the but erasmus program in europe for example helps people connect better i know but they do it Sometimes it becomes only symbolic, unfortunately, sometimes. Because, i give an example here. There are these inter-communal committees they have, mm -hmm. expert groups and here and there. Even that has become politicized now. 
the change of the regime in the north of Cyprus, you know. They want to change it. It was working well, you know. They have on different sectors. Unfortunately, you know, like I belong to what they call United Cyprus Group, which is intercommunal group. There are people they consider us to be traitors. Yes. You know, they don't want it. They don't want any rapprochement, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if, if the conflict is still fresh, yeah. it, it makes sense. Well, it's not fresh. I mean, bloody hell, it's going well, on for a long. But the question is yeah. that uh, people are exploiting the situation mm -hmm. in the worst manner. Mm -hmm. And they don't want, I mean, this question, it was very good that they opened these borders, etc., for people to interact together. Because unless you interact, unless you see someone you deal with, you realize that you know they are the same like you. Yeah, yeah. I feel the same about Belgium. In Belgium, you know, we we have a separation between the Dutch and the yeah, French. Sure. And I, I could if I lived in the French. I, I live in the French side, and if I wanted to, I could just go my whole life without seeing a Dutch Belgian. Um, but that's. I feel like that's quite scary. And but here, the scary part is that the school, the education, things. It's it's not helping. Mm -hmm. There's a need for a major change of emphasis mm -hmm. yeah i think in in belgium at least it's a problem of language first and foremost because we don't speak the same language so how well, can we even understand each yeah, other but here also there's no language the same yeah. language the same religion also here mm -hmm. but the question is that uh, you can still communicate and all stuff. Yeah. yeah and what has happened now of course in cyprus is that uh, the turkish cypriot is a minority in cyprus now in the north they are overwhelmed by the number of uh, what they call settlers they brought from Turkey, yeah. with whom they don't have anything much in common. The Turkish Cypriot overall, they were always more secular yeah. than those from Turkey. So now they are in the north, less than 30% of the population in the north is Turkish Cypriot. Mm -hmm. A lot of them are living. And so more than half of the people in the Turkish part are actually Turkish, not at all Cypriot, of origin. From Turkey, they brought them yeah. as settlers was part of the plan to change the whole setup of population yeah i um i want to get back a little bit to the united nations and one i was wondering how you see the un evolve in the future because i i'm sure you must be keeping up with even having been uh, retired now for a few years you must be keeping up still with how the un is doing how do you see it evolving uh, well something i've to compare, something i've said to the president it's not just on my own view, but on my friends who have retired from the UN. I find it increasingly more and more difficult to connect with the United Nations, mm -hmm. to relate myself. Because of the attitudes of governments, it has been sidelined, let's be frank about it. And therefore, a lot of decisions are taken based on political expediencies. Unfortunately, therefore, you can see almost irrelevant or irrelevancy what's happening in the real world. Yeah, it is silence completely. Unfortunately, I say this thing more so than I was there. It's not the first time, but now completely with this. I do hope that the United States will try to re engage itself more actively, mm -hmm. you know along with other governments. Do you think governments need to get more active in the UN? Do you think... It's not part of the organization. Well, mm -hmm. I, I, no, sorry, I mean more, um, almost in like a federalizing sense. You know how there's, a lot of people talk about this dichotomy of like, should the UN have more power or less power over things? Well, the UN can be as powerful as the governments are prepared to give it to them. But what would but you like to see? Well, you can't give more power. The question is that governments should use the UN mm -hmm. mechanism yeah, as a tool. Yeah. tool to come to terms with each other with the proper mandates mm -hmm. and to follow the international mandates. Otherwise, it doesn't work. Because, you know, having been, having served as secretary of so many intergovernmental bodies, including security government, you, know, you find governments sometimes voting for this government another government support. On the same issue, they will vote just opposite because they don't 
like the other garments. So it's like playground, the play children's Pardon? playground. Yeah, it is. So therefore, unless there is more unity among member states, mm -hmm. remember there are 193 different member states. Yes. Yeah. Hell of a job. And uh, you see it also in security council with this major permanent five. If one of them doesn't like it, nothing goes through. Yeah. Do you see the the Security Council changing at all? This is I, I feel like this is the oh, main thing. It's been thing talked for the past. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Ever since because, it was let's be frank about it. In order to have, even if we pass a resolution in the General Assembly, mm -hmm. unless permanent five members agree, mm -hmm. all of them, any one of them can veto it. Yeah. yeah. And nobody is going to give up his permanent see of membership. Yeah. For the purpose of helping the United Nations as a whole. Yeah, and just for listeners who might not know the permanent five of France, UK, USA, China, Russia. Yeah, so those are very competing interests uh, in that five. And these are the powers who are the victors during the yeah. Second World War. And a lot of people I, I know question those the existence of those five as permanent because we see countries, you know, like Nigeria, like Brazil, like India, they're coming up in, yeah. in terms of population, in terms of GDP, in terms of yeah. every metric you want to think of. So it makes no sense that a country like the I UK, know. sorry Brits, <laughs> or uh, France even, stays in as know, that but, powerful of a world. But no way you're going to change it because... They unless, need to vote to yeah. change it, yeah. No, so it's a problem, you know, that's... As I said, you still, I look at this, it was a fantastic idea. But then when you have a situation that in the past four years, but the main force behind the creation of the UN was ignoring the United Nations. Let's be frank about it. Mm -hmm. So unless governments are prepared to work and use the organization a little more unselfishly, mm -hmm. then it cannot, don't blend the organization. As I said to you, it's like, hey, get crazy now. If you know how to use it, you can make fantastic dishes. Yeah. You don't know how to use it, you can chop your fingers, but don't blame the cuisiner. Mm -hmm. Simple as that. Yeah. I have one big question, which is, um, I know that you, well, your, your persona, at least, uh, appeared in a film. Uh, and I wanted to see, how do you feel about Ben Kingsley having been chosen to play you? One interviewer, one reviewer had put it very interestingly that Ben Kingsley must have been desperate for money to accept <laughs> to play. <laughs> it's a stupid movie, I'm yeah. sorry to say. I, I Based on a stupid movie. book written by this guy who used to work in my office. Mm -hmm. He just tried to make a name for himself. And full of inaccuracies, full of stupidities. I had a long interview about it in the Cyber's Mail yeah. two years ago. I don't know if you saw it or not. I can send it to you if I see it. I don't know what it is. It's nothing but it got very bad reviews. Yeah, it didn't last too long. Also, it's a joke. What is it like seeing someone play you in a film? <laughs> because I, I don't know, Jimmy and I can't really attest to that yet. <laughs> you saw it? No, no, no. I mean, Jimmy and I haven't had uh, the chance of having just, someone play us. For me, the whole thing was so stupid. I just, yeah. I couldn't believe it. I've read the book also. Yeah, I kind of want to talk just a little bit about this, which is the the fact that you're legally confined to Cyprus, right? Well, because I don't even try to test it. Yeah, <laughs> why, why would you? <laughs> but the, the US, if I'm correct, the US has uh, put out uh, an arrest warrant for you. Is that correct? Or is it? That's because they indicted me, supposedly. Okay. I mean, look, let's be frank. I dealt with the largest program of the UN mm -hmm. in terms of value. The oil for food program, yeah. Over $100 billion. Billion, huh? with B. Yeah. To be accused of being a crook is bad enough. But to be accused of being the most stupid crook in the world, that's a real insult. Having dealt with over $100 billion, to be accused that I got kickback of $160,000, that's an insult to my intelligence. Because if I wanted to get it, I could get millions. And initially, so. and you know how did, they, how did I come to this figure? First, by the way, the investigation cost $39.5 million. Okay, to which was paid by the program itself, and it's 160 or 165 thousand dollars. They discovered how, at my level of the UN, every January we fill our financial disclosure forms. Mm -hmm. 
my uncle was a twin sister of my mother and who was never married. I was like her son. She brought me up. So from time to time, she used to give me money, let's say 5,000 or something like that. Throughout the years, it became 160,000. And me, I used to record them on financial disclosure paper. I received $5,000 from my aunt. Mm-hmm. I didn't have to do it. He was getting black money, you think I'm going to report it. But the whole thing was, then again, I don't blame Americans. But you told me before last year, I remember that you, you thought it was almost a kind of, well, you called it, I think, like a ploy by corporations that worked in Iraq and in the old for food program uh, to find a scapegoat in you. Not corporations, American government, not corporations. Yeah, well, same thing these days. No, 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 no. no. So the question is, they won't divert from attention from the disastrous invasion they did. I wrote something, in fact, of an op-ed page which was published in Herald Tribune. I don't know if you've seen it or not. It was published. And the point is that uh, initially the idea was, the effort was to try to kick Kofi Annan out. Because Kofi in his interview, after repeatedly being asked by the interviewer, this was on BBC, as to what he considered to be legal or not, he said the invasion was illegal. Mm-hmm. And they called on him for resignation. I called Kofi, I said, please call a press conference and ask who is Senator Norm Coleman. He was the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee. Mm-hmm. And somebody will tell you, he's the senator, tell him you are not elected by the Senate of the United States. After friends, they came together of his to support him, then he was pushed away. Even his son was accused also. Then they had someone else. So they came to me. A guy from Cyprus, small country. So it goes with the territory, as they say. You think I'm going to agree to be corrupt and get $160,000 when I dealt with over $100 billion? I wonder what, because you said that you, throughout the years, as you went up as well, you managed to get all the way to Undersecretary General, which yes. is, which is, and, and throughout a lot of different organizations of the UN as well. Um, well. How was it working with Kofi Annan? Because he's, I know a lot of people, for a lot of people, he's a, an icon, he's a hero sometimes even. He's a, a symbol for, for many. How did you find it working with him or, or even with some of the other Listen, high-ranking UN officials? Kofi and I, we go long back. As I said, we knew each other almost 40 years. We were friends, colleagues. My wife used to be a colleague of his also. When he was in personnel, the, their offices were next to each other. I mean, so I've known Kofi for a long time. I dealt with anybody. Mm-hmm. You know, so I had no problem working with him. Sometimes I think he was too soft. For example, don't uh, want to For example, me, I was opposed, along with two other colleagues, to send the staff back so quickly back to Iraq again after we evacuated in Cyprus. Mm-hmm. And look what happened, you know. Because what happened was that we became identified in the eyes of some people with the invaders and occupiers. Yeah. Because our offices were in the same compound as Americans. Mm-hmm. So therefore, you know, Al-Qaeda came after us. Mm-hmm. So one has to be careful because another point I want to make about United States Nations stuff, before, when you wore the blue beret or you flew the blue flag, gave us some respect and consider an amount of security protection. Lately, because I, I tell you, among other things, concurrently I served also as the one in charge of UN security, New York and also worldwide coordinating security. Lately, this past decade or so, more than that, UN has become a very easy target. We have lost more and more people every year in the line of duty than before. Mm-hmm. Because we are easy targets, we are easily identify with invaders and occupiers, like it happened in Iraq. Mm-hmm. So it has become more dangerous to be a staff member in the field. Yeah. Is there a way for the UN to become more neutral in that sense? Well, I don't like to use the word neutral. I think you should use the word impartial. Impartial. Because okay. I don't want us to be neutral mm-hmm. in front of crimes. Yeah, of course. But at the same time, it's become more difficult because it's easy to identify as a part of the the second general and others, they take a stand more independent in terms of stating what we're doing instead of trying to please governments. Mm-hmm. Maybe easier. 
It's a difficult job. Yeah, no, for sure. I wonder what your thoughts are in the very long term. If exercised with extreme caution, would you see as integrating nation states in the direction of something towards global government? Would you see that as a positive thing or, or, or possibly ever a possible thing? Well, watching what's going on now with populism spreading wide, widespread in Europe, other places, in terms of integration, I find it more difficult to see it happening. Look at even within European Union, it's not just Brexit, but look at some other countries like Hungary, Poland, others. There is a movement of separation also there. They cannot identify themselves there. You see what happened a little while ago, a few days ago, on the threat to veto the budget of European Union by Hungary others because they don't want to accept conditions being placed on them. Mm -hmm. So it's difficult to predict how the world is going to go through. I hope it doesn't break apart. I'm not just talking about European Union because of populism. And also with all the struggling, misery, suffering going on now, compounded by COVID and compounded, and it's going to get worse with the environmental disasters developments in Africa, other parts of the world, particularly with desertification going on. Average persons in the world is going to be in a more miserable situation than before. Next year is going to be worse than this year, I'm sure. I hope I'm wrong. And therefore, when you are desperate, a populist comes suddenly, speaks about all sorts of stupidities. And if you are so desperate, you feel attracted to him. This is what's happening now. My worry is that there will be more populism, more populism spreading around the world in terms of leadership. Just to quickly dangerous. come to that uh, environment, just a quick question on, on the environment since you mentioned it. I wonder what the amount or like what the scale of awareness was like in the UN when you were there about environmental issues. Is this something that a lot of states were talking about or the secretariat? Yeah, I mean, about? look, things that at the UN like there is United Nations Environment Program mm -hmm. organization which is stationed in. How long? How long has the UNEP been working? For a long time. Been working for I was established after I joined the UN. Okay. Maurice Strong was the first one I remember. In fact, I was about to go to be a special assistant. Hmm. And you know, so they have these meetings, blah 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 blah, but there's no follow-up actions, you know. Now with this habitat business in Paris, now at least. They're talking more concrete terms, what to do, etc. Because at the UN, we have a committee or an intergovernmental expert group or something on every bloody thing you can think of, you know. But the question is the follow up. Yeah. It's not just adopting resolutions. Mm -hmm. Well, the, the UNEP has been absolutely phenomenal in terms of creating reports, at least the past few years. Well, most of the things people create, get a report is one thing. Mm -hmm. You know, so There's the IPCC as well that was created, yeah. uh, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. That's part of the UN, and you know the the AR the AR the assessment reports about the environment have been the biggest reports of the year each time. I know, but it's a limited audience. Mm -hmm. Unless it touches the day-to-day -to -day lives of the people, nothing will happen. Yeah, I think we're yeah, enough. No. Yeah, I think we're going to wrap it up. Uh, maybe we can end with just a final little anecdote from maybe your favorite, I don't know, your favorite anecdote from the UN, favorite time that you had. I know the Papua New Guinea uh, no, story. It's okay. Is, no, it's, nice. it's okay, yeah? Hmm? It was good, Papua New Guinea, though. No? Yeah, I enjoyed it very much. Yeah. I know you had um, quite a crazy experience with your landing in a helicopter. No, it was fantastic experience, you know, I mean, to sit around with people with skulls hanging in the back. They are headhunters. Mm -hmm. Talking about them, I was telling you before that uh, I was telling that it was the day Americans were going to land on the moon. I was evening, the moon is you can see on the sky, and I was surrounded with these uh, headhunters sitting by, and one of the missions was there, it was in Asmat area. This is the area where Rockefeller's son was lost. And I put the voice of America to listen to the landing on the moon, and I told them, Somebody's going to land on the moon. They were not impressed. They said, hmm. I said, hmm, what? Well, we had somebody in the village who used to go up every night. And I said, huh. In the meantime, 
The announcer says, we're just about to land the moon. I said, uh, how? Well, there was this tree. This guy will come every day at sunset. We whispered to the tree, and the tree will allow him to climb the tree. They go up and up. He plays around between the stars. By sunrise, they'll come down. And what happened? The tree got tired. So he said, enough. So the poor guy begged him for the last time. So the tree agrees, they climb again. Half tonight, the tree gets tired and look, I have to go down. I can't do it anymore, too tired. So it start almost falling down. So it started to swallow the stars and the belly was getting bigger and bigger and bigger and heavier, of course. And the stars more and more. And they asked me, he said, do you see any stars at the horizon? No, because he, he swallowed them all as they were falling down. <laughs> they got so heavy that the tree crashed and the belly opened up and the stars went all over. You don't believe? No, I said. Look at the back. I look at the back, there were these three huge trees, leaked like thousands of stars with fireflies. <clears throat> and the contrast of what they really believe, and here's the guy landing on the moon, you know. Yeah. Up in the mountains, they used to use stone axes, you know, so. I mean, it's a different culture. It was a fantastic experience to be with these people. Yeah. All right. Ben on Sevan, thank you so much for joining us. Enough. Thank you. That was, br that was brilliant. Thank you. Yeah, we had, I think we learned a lot. In, uh, Send me a, a copy when you finish. For sure, for sure. Yeah. And uh, I know that you're writing a, a book as well, a memoir, right? No? It's not, you gave up? No. <laughs> Why? <laughs> when I see so many books written, they're all in bookshops collecting the. Uh, <laughs> oh, well, I'd love to read whatever yeah. you've yeah. written even a little bit. Um, but thank you for joining yeah. us. Thank you. Okay, nice to meet you. <laughs> you too. Thank you.